Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. Welcome to the podcast. I have it in my hands. I am holding it. This is fresh off the printer. It is, it's not hot, but it is, it's, it's tepid. It's a tepid piece of paper. It's fold. like room temperature. Yeah, there, there's nothing to get too excited about with this piece of paper that I'm waving frantically at the screen. However, uh, on here, I have a list of things that require us to give take. our opinion. Oh. Yeah, take. We need to take. We need to give some takes. Um, okay, so if you're, if you're listening and you have no clue because you're not watching on the YouTube channel, you're, you're, mess, you're messing up because um, you can see our beautiful faces. Sometimes you can even see our calves if we're wearing shorts in the summertime. And if you're curious to see what that looks like, go to youtube.com backslash multifamily investing made simple and you can see our faces. But if you're listening to the podcast and you're in the car, don't worry about it. You can keep listening. And what we're going to do here is Reed has compiled for us a, a frothy list of headlines from the news. And as Dan and I are wont to do, we don't we don't look at the news, so we don't know what these are. But we're going to give our opinion on them. No, no less. I'm not even sure what day it is right now. It's a day. Could be October. It is a month of a day. It is a day of a month. Mm. Um, so these are, this is everybody's favorite series. It is the tepid takes. Not hot takes, because that would imply we know what we're talking about. Not cold takes, because that would imply we no one wants don't, a cold we don't take. know anything. <laughs> we know some things. Uh, but this is tepid. This is tepid. This is like uh, the temperature where if the waiter brings it to your table, you maybe think about sending it back for them to reheat it, but it might not even be worth the effort. So you just kind of... You kind of eat the lukewarm spaghetti. This is like, like it's fine. This is like Bite Squad. Like you got to yeah. you got to microwave it when it shows up. It's like you're not happy about it, but you do it. And your food's gonna be kind of soggy. <laughs> so here's uh, your soggy takes. Number one, Grant Cardone oh, faces geez, class action guy. lawsuit for overinflating potential returns. We know. Okay, so this one. I feel like we talked about this one to death. This well, this one comes up like every seven months. This is something I've come to realize. I feel I, like he's the one pushing all this out. I think so. Like publicity. I, he definitely is like in that camp of any he's not news downplaying is good news. It. Yeah, and I remember getting excited a couple of years ago when I first saw like the very first news report of a class action lawsuit against Grant. Because like, oh my god, that's so exciting! Like, look at this. Um, we did like something was actually going to come of it. Like something was going to happen. <laughs> this is like the fifth time I've seen this. Um, I've given up hope. It's this isn't going anywhere. Is he guilty of doing these things? Yeah, probably. So is anything going to happen? I have given up hope. I don't think our justice system will do anything on this one. So, I, I think know. some lawyers are going to make some money. Yeah, that's about no, it. That's about it. And Grant Cardone is going to get a little bit more attention, which is his goal. Yeah, and. I don't know, guys. I don't have to tell you. Basically, he just talks too much about specific numbers on social media. Yeah. Like, that's his problem. That's what... There's nothing too scandalous here. It's not like he's he's stealing or he's, he's scamming people. Like, there's there's questionable practices for sure, mm-hmm. but there's nothing blatantly, like, illegal, like, outright fraud, as yeah. far as I can tell. It's just like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't scream some of the things at the camera that you scream. Yeah. 
And, and I can't imagine a scenario where this does anything, even if they found him guilty, beyond just like get a fine. some kind of fine, a slap on the wrist, and be like, "Hey, chill." Tone yeah, it just down. stop using specifics I mean, on Instagram. There, there are certainly things about Grant Cardone's practices I think that you should be upset about that are very dubious, and they, I don't think they're in the fiduciary best interest of your investors. Mm. Um, I don't think he's... Technically illegal? Technically. Not really, yeah. but just not... Such a gray zone that you wouldn't do it if you were like uh, genuinely cared about your investors. Yeah. But um, I don't know, like... I have a hard time believing at this point that Grant Cardone and his legal team are going to do something like maybe when he's talking about returns. Yeah. But I don't think they're doing anything that's like blatantly breaking the law. That's kind of, I've come full circle on him. And I'm pretty sure, sorry if I offend anybody in the audience who's a Scientologist, but I'm pretty sure that when people in that uh, organization are having problems, they got a pretty big uh, um, partner back there to help them fight things off. Right. Got a partner? Who's your partner? Scientology. Oh, that, that sure seems meant, like, to Tom watch Cruise. out for its. Well, yeah, he. Yeah. Tom Cruise. You don't want Tom Cruise coming after he you. Might, yeah, he might fly in on a motorcycle and just karate, karate chop kick. everybody in the face. But anyway, I don't know what to say about this one. Yeah. It's, Grant it's Cardone, happening. Sketchy so. dude. Um, I don't think he's doing anything illegal, is my guess. But um, I also don't think he's doing things right. So we'll mm -hmm. leave it there. All right, next one. Oh, this is way less exciting. Uh, the Federal Federal Reserve is suddenly doubling its forecast for growth, but will they keep hiking rates? And that's a big question is that what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to keep hiking rates? Is the GDP going to come in strong? What's happening with inflation? Those are the questions. What do you think? Has your position changed much over the past quarter? No, not really. I think the biggest thing is that the... All those uh, bills and bonds that the Fed issued a couple of years ago when rates were zero are going to be turning over at whatever, five, six, seven, eight percent, whatever maturity they decide to issue. That's going to be a lot of new interest payments they're going to have to make. So they're incentivized to get things down a little bit. Um, but the market's responding surprisingly well to rates where they're at. So I don't think the Fed is going to start to, they've been so concerned about not doing enough that they're not just going to start dropping things precipitously. But I think they're going to come down a smidge, but then we're not going to get back to where we were. So it's the same thing I've always been saying. I don't think anything has changed other than it's just further confirmation that the world isn't exploding, that they seem to be uh, doing pretty well at what they tried to do, albeit their pace could have been a little bit more efficient, I think. I was actually just listening to um, uh, Gunlock talk about how he came out when they made their first hike back in 2022, he made a call that they should have just done 200 basis points immediately and then started to do things, you know, a little bit small after that and just gotten it out of the way. And um, he sounded crazy at the time. Everyone was like, no, no, that's way too much. And like, they've far surpassed that. So it's like in retrospect, yeah, that actually probably would have been like the perfect thing to do. Like mm. screw the 25, followed by the 50 and then all the 75s, just do 200 and then maybe a few more 25s and call it a day. What do you think would have happened? Uh, like, in a we wouldn't have seen nine like, percent inflation. Do you think the world would have freaked out so dramatically, though? That yeah, but we've like, been freaking out for like a year and a half, so it would have just been like a condensed freak, and then I don't know what would have happened. No one knows, but in theory, we wouldn't have seen the inflation that we saw last year that um, has made all other sorts of things way more complicated. Like, yeah, rates are up, but like labor's up, materials up, everything. <laughs> everything's gone up a lot. So I feel like that's going to hurt more than the rates just being higher, like having high rates and everything costs way more is worse than what it could have been. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question of like, are you better off having a mass panic or like a mass panic for a short period of time or like a micro panic that extends for a long time? Like live with the anxiety. Um, yeah, I think it was just like death by a thousand cuts for like a year and a half. And it's hard to say. Like, I think you would well, get... Volker did it at 200. You know, that's what everyone keeps pointing to. So we got a case study. Like it worked. So... Yeah, I mean... Some people got pissed. Some people got burned, but... Yeah. I always... You know how they say like the past uh, never repeats itself, but it always rhymes. I think it's always Mark Twain. Yeah, something like that. But it's always hard to like take that that market that that macro dynamic that occurred say a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, and then apply it to the current situation. That's the part that's like so tricky about macroeconomics is that there's only the like thirty years so, ago. So messy. Yeah, I mean, there's everything's always different. It's never going to be the same. Yeah. Like you can't just like there's all these other variables in place, but it seems like the slightly better way to do it would have been just a big punch right away and then just get it over with, rip the Band-Aid off. And, but we'll see. We'll see. This next one ties into what you were kind of mentioning here mm-hmm. is that landlord insurance is getting expensive. Um, this, is, this looks like an article that was, here's seven ways to reduce your bill. And I'll be honest, I'm looking at these and I'm like, yeah, these are all pretty basic. But um, the, the landlord, the insurance is interesting because that, we have definitely seen some massive spikes over the last two, three years. And, and our market isn't even one of the, like, the heaviest insurance markets for you know, natural disasters. As, as an example, you look at like Florida. There's, it's very hard to make deals even pencil anymore in Florida because insurance has skyrocketed so much over the last year in particular to the point where insurance companies in a lot of cases just aren't even touching buildings that are like totally solid and great, great, great areas. But... They're like, this is not worth it. So you got to do something to bring down your insurance. Yeah, I was actually talking to an insurance broker yesterday. And I asked him, um, you know, why, like, why is the insurance market bleeding? Because he said, like, he didn't say what everybody else says, that insurance costs are going up. He said the insurance providers, the property insurance providers are bleeding. I was like, why is that? And here's, I, I jotted down the notes of what he said. He said, um, a lot of it's weather related, um, which, so yeah, inflation's the easy one. That's what everybody's saying. Like there's inflation, there's um, uh, supply chain issues that have still not completely been uh, rectified. So like the materials, if there's a claim, is going to cost more. The labor is going to cost more. We all know that. But then the weather one was like, oh, that's right. You know, that, that has been a very interesting factor. We've got fires in California. We've got hurricanes on the coast, all of which are being are, are more frequent than they used to be. We've got a lot of hail in the Midwest, which we've had a couple times here. And so there's all these claims all over the country that are being paid out, which is driving prices up as well. So it's not just inflation and supply chain stuff. It's also just the crazy-ass weather. And these insurance companies are just paying out claims all over the damn place. So Insurance has been riding the cozy train for so long. Like, that's just a way to print money. And now they're like, oh, we got to pay out on this stuff? No, that's not how our business model typically works. Yeah. We're usually just collecting money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I thought that was interesting. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, these uh, ways that you can do it, I feel like are meh, whatever. There's nothing super The biggest one here, I think, is just shopping around. And just really, the one I've noticed is really keeping an eye on your um, replacement costs. Um, because even if these other factors aren't causing rates in general to rise, something that insurance companies do do is uh, update your replacement cost when policies renew. And that may or may not be in line with the real replacement cost. So keep an eye on that. When there's something coming up for renewal, don't just click yes, renew. Like 
look at it, see if there's an adjustment you want to make, and maybe shop it around every year. Make a point of it. You might not find a better deal, but you might. Is this something that the insurance companies are coming back and saying, well, of course the, the cost of replacement is higher now because it's material supplies and all that. And so are they making that argument or? They don't say anything. The number is just different. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> just here it is. You want to renew? They, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, like uh, they don't want to tell you all the things they're doing. They're just like, here's the, here's, here's all the information. It's a big doc. You can read through it if you want, or you can just renew so you don't have to do any work. And they're just kind of hoping you, you keep renewing without actually digging in and seeing what they've changed and seeing if it actually makes sense. Don't do that. Shop yeah. it. Okay. Uh, rents are falling more slowly in U.S. suburbs than in cities. It's funny because this, this, this headline says, here's why. And then I wrote, I read the notes. It doesn't tell me why. <laughs> I don't see the why. <laughs> it just says that the rents are falling more slowly in suburbs than in core cities. What do you think about that? Uh, well, first, I take issue with the title because, I mean, I don't take issue with the title, but I just want to clarify this uh, for our audience because this is something that you're going to see a lot. Whenever you see rents going up, rents going down, when you're seeing like a headline in the news, on TV, or in the paper, they're almost always talking about just rental prices as a whole. They're not talking about an asset class. And class A is where we've seen dips is where we've seen concessions because we've had tons of apartments come online across the country in certain markets, tons and tons of like way too many. Like I think in Texas is one where the supply uh, uh, demand dynamic is pretty much flipped in the last couple of years. So when we see that rents are falling, a lot of that's being driven by class A new builds and the stuff that we're in, we're not seeing that at all. They're going up. So I just want to get that out of the way. Um, but it makes sense. I mean, there's more than a handful of cities around the U.S. that are having less than ideal situations in their urban areas, whether it be crime. Um, so people are saying, screw it. I'm going out to the burbs. I just work on Zoom these days. So why do I need to be in the city if I don't actually have to be there for work anymore? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, I'd be curious. Um, whenever I see stuff like this, it's always like a supply-demand question, right? Like, is there just too much supply, not enough demand? And my, my gut tells me that the suburbs, well, we know this for sure. In 2020, a lot of people moved out of the metro areas out to the suburbs. They wanted more space. A lot of cases, I think they were moving into homes if they were, you know, upward mobile enough. But um, even the people who are maybe are in that class B, class C space, like they don't necessarily, if they, if they have the ability to go, you know, outside the city, they go to the suburbs. There's probably not as much supply out there as there just is in the city. And so you just look at it from that one lens and it's like, there's probably more supply in the metro than there is current current demand. That's what I'm seeing, at least in Minneapolis and the Class A space, is that there's like a lot of supply. There's a lot of new buildings going up, a lot of things that have opened up in the last five, six years, and it just doesn't seem like there's as much demand. Um, my guess is a lot of those people that were living down here that the the developers were kind of projecting would be here, they're not. They're, they went to the burbs. I don't know. Just haven't come back yet. I think they will. It's going to be different. It's not going to be the back. same people. But. A different group. They'll forget. They'll forget the trauma of 2020. Um, I can't even remember the trauma anymore. I've kind of blacked it out. So rent's falling more slowly. All right. I sure. don't know. This doesn't, unfortunately. These are tepid. What do you expect? Yeah, this is a tepid take. There's just not enough information in this um, write-up that I have in front of me to be able to say, like, what are these numbers? Are they meaningful? Are, 
Tommy Moore. There's and, no and numbers also, here, actually. It says there's there's nothing falling slower, but we don't know how what is that how much like? are they falling? Which cities is that? Because again, like you're talking about asset classes, but like which cities matter a whole lot? Phoenix, uh, LA, um, Las Vegas. These cities have seen like huge year over year rent decreases. Mm-hmm. So is that what's pulling down the national average, or or what are we talking about here? I don't. I know. mean, you know what? I, I th- need more information. You know what it is. I could probably guess it's all the markets that were everyone was freaking out about three years ago, where they were seeing 20% rent growth year over year. It's probably all of those markets, and this is what happens. This is why we like boring old steady Eddie in the Midwest, where we don't have 20% year over year growth. We have you know 5% on average, maybe 4%. Um, all those markets that did really, really well a few years ago are the ones that are now kind of hurting right now. I probably wouldn't be surprised at all if I see the list. One of the interesting things here that I'm just now seeing is that the 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 rent between the suburban areas and the metro areas are actually starting to get more in equilibrium. That actually makes a little bit of sense if you think about the suburban areas probably were a little bit cheaper than the urban areas. Mm-hmm. And now if the urban areas' prices are coming down, those are getting a little bit more equal. Um, that's actually interesting because you, you do have to ask yourself, like, Okay, well, that attract more people to leave the suburbs to come back to the city because, you know, same price point wise, like the city probably has more reasons to live in it rather than the suburbs. So a hell of a lot more walkable. Usually, I mean, there's a lot of suburbs that have done a really good job of building up and becoming quite walkable. So you've almost got like a little mini, I don't know, like kind of Main Street thing going on. We've got restaurants and things you can walk to, so it's not like you're, you know, a drive distance from everything that matters, which is great, but. Mm. But yeah, generally speaking, you would expect if you're like near the city, like five to 10 minutes away from everything, you're going to pay more than if you're 20 minutes away from all the stuff you want to see. Mm-hmm. Right? So will we see this flip flop over the next three years, four years? That's a question. If those, if the metro rents are suddenly lower than the suburbs, you might see a whipsaw as people start moving back to the cities. Rents start going back up. Suburb prices drop. Wow. It could be an ebb and flow. We'll see. Stay tuned. Human nature is would imply that they're going to people are going to start to aggregate again near one another in a more densely populated area that's typically what humans do i, I don't know if it's going to be a 3 or 4 years but yeah give it a decade and it's probably going to look a lot like it did a decade ago all right for whatever reason it seems like every time that we do tepid takes this company it feels like we're always talking about this company reed's got a thing for we work he loves we work all right WeWork, shortly after warning about its future, seeks to renegotiate nearly all of its leases. The New York company must reduce its operating costs, notably its current lease liabilities, which remain too high and are dramatically out of step with current market conditions. WeWork is a hot mess of a company, mm-hmm. and it's not surprising. Like what he's alluding to here, CEO David Tolley, is saying... I do not envy that man. No, he... Why did you take this job? Why would job? you take that job? There's, You're never going to win in a way that's going to make people look at you as the hero. Like, he's, he's no chance. He's losing 10 years off his life. But effectively, what he's saying, you know, like the office you know, the commercial environment has just gone smashed, smashed over the last couple of years. And I'm sure that they locked in these long-term leases back in like, well, I don't know, when they were built, when they were like, when they're coming up, 2017, 18, 19. And now he's looking at it and be like, okay, what we're paying for, for rent? way too much given current market environments we want to renegotiate now they probably can do this because they have enough leverage maybe like they have wield a big enough stick with the landlords that maybe they can make this work generally though most of the time that you try to do this if you if you're not a big billion dollar company or whatever like you're just gonna be told to go 
pound sand. That's I don't know a lot about the office market. You know, I've I've read a little bit to try to keep up on what's going on. It's definitely not our space. We have no exposure to that. But from what I hear, anecdotally, you know, the A class office space is is still quite strong. It's basically, I think, B for sure, C, and definitely D. That stuff is what's getting really hurt, but the A-class stuff is still doing all right with being able to lease up space. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're not, if they don't have as much leverage as you would think. If they're in a building that has high demand, if it's a trophy asset, and they're trying to renegotiate like this, my guess is that the landlords, if if what I've heard is correct, if the landlords are, are getting that from WeWork, they might be better served just going and releasing to somebody else as opposed to dealing with a company that's clearly not doing well. Yeah. So I don't know. It is interesting because like anecdotally, when I look around this, this area that we are uh, located in our headquarters, like in downtown Minneapolis, there's so many like new class A retail and office locations that are just struggling to get rented up. So, but then you look at the other side where we work is on like your side of Washington Avenue. And it seems like leasing up activity over there is, doesn't have nearly the same headwinds that it does on this side. Well, there's no new office development over here. I mean, there's no, there's no real A class. All the stuff on this end is built probably 20 years ago, at least. So I'm thinking um, you took it Park Avenue right here or Iron Space, like their they're downstairs first floor retail office um, spaces or the vicinity pretty much. Yeah, pretty much every one of these buildings has some kind, and what's going across the street right now, has some kind of like ground floor commercial retail office space. Well, people don't like this side as much. Yeah. It's more riffraff, more uh, activity, I would say. Not the ideal kind of activity. My side's a little quieter. I don't know why. Yeah, your um, side seems like it stays better. It's a little stuff. bubble. It's, it's interesting. Bubble. Matt, you're on my side now, right? Too quiet. Too, Whoa, man. Well, you picked like it, a very quiet. quiet little corner, okay? Yeah, you're in, you're in the little nook, but... Um, all that's to say, we'll, I'm, I'm not surprised we work is in trouble. Nobody's, I don't think, surprised by this. Um, Adam Newman is. Will, <laughs> What's going on? Will they um, ultimately be able to renegotiate their leases? I, my guess is that in a lot of cases they will because it, from what I understand, like even if it means taking a haircut on the, on the rent, it's probably in the landlord's best interest to not have to mess around with trying to get new tenants in there because that can be such a... Such a pain in the butt, not to mention Maybe. like a big cash outlay doing like tenant renovations and whatnot. So I don't know. Um, we'll see. I, as always, I'm not surprised we work is in trouble. Time will tell. Hopefully they go under in the next couple of years and then Reed will stop giving us tepid takes about we work. Good luck, David Tolley. Okay. Yeah, not an envi- enviable job. I hope he's getting paid handsome. Good luck, buddy. I don't know why you Because you just yourself. voluntarily jumped into a dumpster fire. Like there's no way this ends well for you. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's getting paid a lot. It's just like... How many wrinkles, how many gray hairs, and how many years of his life is he sacrificing to get this paycheck for however many years? It wasn't worth it, I'll tell you that. But yeah. All right, those are our tepid takes. Um, some of these were icy. Some of them were almost steaming. I burnt myself on one. Oh, um, like the roof of your mouth? Like a pizza burn? Yeah, it's the worst. That's the worst, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully this did not burn any of the listeners. Um, but if it did, next time just let us know and we'll blow on it a little bit more before we serve it up to you and uh that's gonna do it for us as always we love we appreciate and we respect you and you look great today see you next week
Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.